Good morning, church. Did that come through the speakers? No. Oh, there we go. We're on. Um, I'm going to, even though I need this fan, as many of you will know, um, I'm going to turn it off so that if you're listening on the podcast, you don't think I've got a breathing problem. Um, You know what? It's great to be here this morning. Um, And as was said on the amazing video, we're continuing our series on stress to freedom. Um, And as I thought about what that implies, I got excited about that title from stress to freedom. Um, Because often you might think we go from stress to rest, which is also true, but ultimately what that rest brings is a freedom in Christ. Amen. Um, And so I'm excited to share this morning because I believe we all need a bit of freedom. Amen. If you need freedom, let me see your hand. Come on. So we all need what God is going to share this morning. Um, And we're going to look at two men. Uh, The first is a man called Elisha and the second is a man called Gehazi. And the man called Elisha, many of you will know is a prophet, and he was the servant or understudy to a other prophet called Elijah, right? And he was a prophet to God's people, right? So you would expect that he lived a certain kind of life. And the other man that, we, that we're going to look at is a man called Gehazi, who was what Elisha used to be to Elijah, which is his servant almost, but that's the term the Bible uses, but I'm guessing they're referring to almost a PA almost, someone that will always be with you as you go around from um, place to place doing the things that God would have you do. And the reason I make that point is because you would think that their lives were very similar. You would think that their outlook was very similar, but I'm going to, spoiler alert, Elisha (laughs) is freedom and Gehazi is stress. Okay, so what we're going to look at today is how they went through certain situations and we're going to, by God's grace, pick out some tools and tips for how we can go from stress, Gehazi, to freedom, Elisha. Amen? Amen. Um, So before we do that, let's pray. Um, Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, whether you're a young person, whether you're an old person, whether you're listening to this on On a podcast later, Lord, let your word be spoken to every single one of us here today. God, let not a single word come out of my mouth that isn't yours. And let us hear clearly what you have to speak to us this morning. Amen? Amen. Great. So let's let's jump straight in. Um, And we're going to turn our Bibles, or turn your eyes to the screen, and read from 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. 8 to 44. Um, we're going to read a number of passages this morning, but I'm not going to raise the head and we're, by God's grace, going to pull out some important things. Amen? So, it says in verse 38, And Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Gehazi, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it in his lap full full of wild gourds and came out and cut them up into a pot of stew, not knowing what they were. 
and they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He, Elisha, then said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour out some for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So we see a miracle has just been done. Verse 42, it says, A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, again, this will be to Gehazi, give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he, so he, Elisha, repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Verse 44, so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I'm going to point out is, will you trust God or will you live in unbelief? If we're going to move from stress to freedom, we need to decide. Because everything we talk about today will require a choice. We can choose whether we continue to live a life of stress or whether we live a life of freedom. And I think Barry mentioned last week, and I'm going to reiterate the point, not all stress is bad stress. So when when I refer to stress, I'm referring to the negative stress that has a negative impact on our bodies and the way we live our lives. But the question, the first question is, will we trust God or will we live in unbelief? Gehazi had been living and working with Elisha. He's been seeing how God works and how God moves. He's been seeing first-hand evidence of how powerful God is. And in this passage, what we see is a miracle had just taken place. The miracle was the food that they were about to eat was poisonous. And then God gave an instruction to Elisha and Elisha followed out that instruction and God made that food pure and edible and sufficient that the men could eat. So they ate and no one died. That was a miracle that that had just taken place. And in the next verse, an instruction was given which essentially said, this pot of water and and a few bits in it, give it out to the people for them to eat. And immediately, Gehazi was like, are you having a laugh, mate? How's this going to go around all these people? Gehazi had forgotten what God has just done in front of him. He didn't hear it second hand. In his eyes, he saw the hand of God. And yet he decided to forget. I say he decided to forget because how many of us have seen the hand of God move and then we face another situation and we are like, how is this going to happen? God, what's going on? Are you all powerful? We start questioning and we forget what God has already done in our lives. I know I do it. So many times, if it's provision, God provided time and time and time and time and time again and I get to that situation, I'm like, God, be... To, to the glory, to you be all glory, amen, amen. Then the next situation, I'm like, God, how's it going to work? I am guilty of forgetting what God has already done and using that as my basis. And so we have to choose to trust God. 
we have to choose to remember the things that he's done. In the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, write it down so that your children can read and know what I've done. The reason being is because there are things we need to remember. There are things we need to draw on, which is what God has already done and what God has done in the past in order for us to move forward. In order for us to learn from a situation and not have to deal with it in the same way we've dealt with it before. But how many times do we doubt God? How many times do we live in unbelief? How many times do we forget what God has just done? The question is, and the choice we have to make this morning, is whether we will trust God or live in unbelief. Because when we trust God, we live in freedom. Because when we are faced with a situation like I was when I was on a hospital bed and, and, the, and the consultant came in and told me, you've got a brain tumour, what will your response be in that situation? Yeah. Yes, it's a dire situation. Yes, yeah. I accept that. But will your response be, God, what's going to happen? Yeah. Or as mine was, okay, God, so be it. It doesn't mean when you trust God that you don't realise the importance of the situation. I'm not talking about switching off and not realising that it's an important situation. What I'm saying is we understand the situation, but we trust God above the situation. And so, will we trust God or will we forget? Will we remember who God is and so live in freedom? Or we will forget and live in stress. Because that's what happens. We're talking about when a situation arises, what is our response to that situation? Will we forget or will we remember? Will we choose stress or will we choose freedom? The next situation is in 2 Kings 5. And we're going to read from verse 15 through to verse 24. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a bit of background as to what we're about to read. So there was a, a nation called Syria, and the king of Syria had an army commander. The army commander's name was Naaman, that's who we're going to read about now. And he was a leper. A leper is, a leprosy is a skin condition probably deeper than that, and I'm slaughtering it, so any doctors forgive me. Um, <laughs> But basically, it wasn't a very good thing, and it's not something you wanted to live with. And I suspect that in Syria, they would have tried everything so as to heal Naaman. What happens is, the king of Syria sends Naaman to the king of Israel and says, heal him. I suspect that there was an ulterior motive in him sending Naaman to to the king of Israel, because... When the king of Israel receives Naaman, his response is one of panic. Because at the time, the Syrian army, from a military power perspective, was way more powerful than the the Israeli army. And so, when he received him, the king of Israel began to panic. Elisha gets wind of this and says, come to me, send him to me. Obviously, being a prophet, the king of Israel did so, all right? And then what happens is Elisha says, go and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman is offended by this because what you would also need to think about is that the Syrians saw themselves as superior to the Israelites. 
Okay? And so Naaman's response is essentially, we've got rivers in, in Syria. And you're going to tell me to go and dip myself in the dirty Jordan and I'm going to be healed. He was offended by it and so walked away. The servants of Elisha ran after him and were like, listen, this is a man of God. You should follow his instruction. And so he does it and he's healed. And so we find ourselves at verse 15. It says, then he returned to the man of God, that's Naaman, he and all his company and came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Take note of his motive. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon me. Essentially what he's saying is, I am under authority, and if I don't follow my master's leading, I will be killed. So I accept that there's no God above the God of Israel, but I will have to go through some ceremonies when I get to um, get back to Syria. And Elisha says, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, stress, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from, his, from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied him up. Two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing. We'll stop there. What you'll see is, and what you'll notice is, that was a lie. Gehazi lied because Elisha said, no, my motivation is the glory of God. And so the question that we need to answer if we're going to move from stress to freedom is, what is your why? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it about what you can get from a situation? Is it about how people will perceive you? Why do you get up on stage and sing? Why do I get up on stage and preach? Why do you serve on the teams that you serve on? Why do you work in the place that you work? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you respond to situations in the same way? Are you holding on to an offence and you're like, I'm going to give you the, response, the, 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 the feeling that, that you've given to me? Because if we do that, every situation we, go into, situation we find ourselves in, all we'll be thinking is, how can I come out of this on top? How can people serve me, or how can I turn this situation to serve my best interests? And sometimes your motives might start out pure, but over time, you find yourself 
only thinking about how can people promote me, how can people think about me, how can people raise my profile up. And it's possible that even in the church we can do that. We can live lives or we can get involved in situations where ultimately the only driving force behind it is how will people see me? Vicky often says, when we build the house of God, he will build our house. At the heart of that, that is, your why is not about yourself. The reason why you do the things you do, the reason why you are involved in the things you get involved in, is not about you. The Bible says that in all things, work is unto the Lord. If we work unto the Lord, by default, what will happen is, you will be the best singer, you will be the best player, you will be the best employee at your place of work, by default because you will give and serve in such a way that glorifies the God that you're serving. And so if your motivation is and your joy is the glory of God, what you will find is inadvertently, I guess your profile might increase. Because that's just the way humans tend to work, right? But your heart and your motivation is not the glory that you receive from men. We talk about worship and the word worship means to denote or demonstrate worthiness. Who are you worshipping? Are you worshipping yourself? Or are you solely focused and driven by the worship of the one who is worthy of all praise? We have to check our motive. David says in the Psalms, Lord, check my heart and see if there be any evil way in me. That prayer says, God, I don't think there is. But you who see all things know my heart. You know my deepest thoughts. You know whether or not I'm driven by my own selfish ambition. You know whether I'm driven by wanting to be praised and to be seen by all men. Or whether my driving factor is the glory and the praise of the one who's worthy of praise. What is your why? Our joy should be the glory of God. Because our lives are for his worship. Because when I was on the hospital bed, what, what I accepted before I got to that point is my life is for the glory of God. And so even if the doctor has said to me, and confirmed, yes, you've got a tumour and it's terminal, my heart response was, God, if my death is to bring to you glory, then so be it. Show me how I can die in a way that gives you glory. I didn't forget the fact that God is a healer and has healed, and I've heard the testimonies of the many times that he's healed, but my heart was, if my death is to bring you glory, then so be it. But equally, I was well aware of the fact that my life can also bring bring glory. And I was like, God, whichever way you choose to bring glory through this situation, so be it. And so I heard what the experts said, right? But I also knew the God who gives the experts the knowledge that they claim to have expertise in. And I was like, well, that's the higher power and I'm going to put my life in his hands and trust what he wants to do in and through my life. Praise God, I was healed and here I am today. But I wasn't all that concerned as to whether or not I was going to be here today. I was concerned with the glory of God in and through that situation. And in every situation, we have to make that choice. 
There are situations in which we have every right to make it about ourselves. And there are situations where no one would look at you and say, why are you making this all about you? And there are times when that's right to do. Because when we read this story, if you were to read it further, and I'd encourage you to do so, Gehazi goes to Elisha and Elisha says, where's the money? Or where did you go? And he lies again and says, I didn't go anywhere. He then says, where's the money? And then ultimately again he lies. And Elisha says to him, this was not the time. Let me read it specifically. It says um, in verse 26, but he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments Olive orchards and vineyards, sheep, oxen, male servants and female servants. The implication there is, there's probably a time when that's accurate and that's right. There, is, there are times when it's right to think about either your family situation or there are, or there are times when that's appropriate. But this situation was not about what we can get from it. This situation was about how we glorify God in God showing his power in this man's life. And what we see through that is that Naaman, the commander of thousands of men, okay, decided there is no God on the earth but the God of Israel. Yeah. If Elisha's motivating factor would have been, right, what can I get from this guy? Immediately the guy offered him the money and the clothes, he would have taken it. And immediately what would have happened is the impact of what God had just done would have been radically diminished. Because all it would have been is, okay, to just another person interested in fame and money. But Elisha said, no. My why is the glory of God. The reason I'm here doing what I'm doing. Because if you understand the life of any prophet, some of them, and most of them, didn't live lavish lives. And so, arguably, we would say, you're probably right to accept the money. You're probably right to accept the clothes because your clothes are probably a mess. But he said, no, my heart is the glory of God. Will our heart be to glorify God in and through every situation we face? The Bible says something that I struggle with from time to time. It says, give thanks in every situation for that is the will of God for your life. The implications there are very serious. Because will we trust the sovereignty, which means the, the rule and the power of God over every single situation, or will we doubt who he is and who he says he is? Will the situation rock our proclamation of God is good all the time? And so we have to choose to decide that our why will be the glory of God and not our own selfish ambition. We have to present our hearts back to God and say, God, search my heart. In the same way David prayed prayed that prayer, search my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because I'll admit there are many times when (laughs) a bit of wickedness comes out in me. (laughs) Um... And we have to be intentional 
And we can't lose sight of it. We can't think, okay, this situation occurred, I was all good, so I'm fine now. There's never any wickedness in me. Because like we said, you can start out with great intentions. You can start over here and everyone's, and, and everyone's like, you're doing great, but you're like, it's all about God and you mean it's all about God. And time goes by, time goes by, you get into a routine, you get into a habit and you're like, why didn't anyone say to me that was great today? Why didn't I get any acclamation? Why didn't I get any encouragement? Why didn't I get this or why didn't I get that? Why did I make a point that was so crucial in that work meeting and no one said to me, that's a great point? Because ultimately, your why over time has changed. And so we consistently have to pray that prayer, God, search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above, yeah? So we can think we're, we're, we're rooted and we're, it's all about God and God, it's all about you. We can know when to raise our hands, when to jump and shout, woo! But ultimately, God's looking at it and thinking, it's not about me. Your passion and your fervency is not about me. We have to be intentional about our why. And the third situation we're going to look at is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 through 17. It's a well-known passage, but we're going to read it anyway. It says in verse 8, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he, was, he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Basically, will you not tell me who the snitch is? And one of his servants says, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Amen. What do you see when you're faced with seemingly impossible situations? It's funny because if I was Elisha in that situation and I was told the Syrian army was outside, my response probably would have been, you what? <laughs> Syria! Are you having a laugh? Naaman, do you remember me, Naaman? Leprosy, I'm the guy who healed you of leprosy and you're here because he's the commander of the army. You're here in front of me to capture me. Are you having a laugh, mate? 
probably not in a Mancunian accent it would have been said, but <laughs> it's all good. But absolutely, that would have been my response. Because if you think about it, Naaman had just received a miracle by the hand of the man he's been sent to capture. Yeah. I would have been screwing. But ultimately, we look at Gehazi and we look at Elisha, and when the Bible says, alas, what that basically means is, oh my gosh, yeah. what are we going to do? <laughs> oh my word, look at them all. Yeah. Sorry for the Mancunian accent. <laughs> but ultimately, that, that's, that's the panic yeah. and the stress that Gehazi expressed in that situation. And many of us will say, yeah, you're probably right to respond in that way. But Gehazi has been with Elisha all the while. He's seen God do incredible things. And I picture, well, I'm going to use the chair as a prop. Oh, I. This was Elisha in his house. Gehazi comes in, panicking, and Elisha's there. For those on podcast, I'm sat in a chair, <laughs> chilling. But I imagine that was Elisha's response. And he did that and said, probably laughed and said, <laughs> God, open his eyes, please. Let him see. Let him see what I know is there. Let him see what I see. What do we see? You know, when I was growing up, there was always this kid who would walk around, boy or girl, as if they're untouchable. This is my reenactment of the untouchable walk <laughs> podcast I'm strutting back and forth sorry I shouldn't do that <laughs> but he or she would walk around as if no one could touch them and the reason why they could walk around as if no one would touch them was because their daddy had a reputation yeah. by themselves they could be touched by anybody but because they know who their daddy is, woo, you what? What are you going to say to me? What are you going to do to me? Do we know who our daddy is this morning, folks? Do we know who our father is this morning, folks? Because when we see and we know our God, there ain't nothing that the devil can do to you where there's no situation that you will face where you will be shaken. There will be no situation you will face where you'll be worried because you know who your God is. You know who your Father is. You know who He is. Who commands the armies of heaven. Come on, church. You know who He is. What do you see when you face a situation? Do you see it and say, yeah, come on, bring it on. That's my God. You don't know who my God is. You don't know who my daddy is. Or do we panic? Do we forget what God has done time and time and time and time again? We have to know who our God is. We have to know who he is. We have to remember the things he's done for us time and time again. And we don't walk around because we're cocky. We walk around because we're confident in the power of our God. We're confident because he's done it before and he will do it again. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So if he did it for you, he will do it for me. I can have that confidence this morning. I don't know what you're facing, but I'm telling you, God is able. God is more than able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all we could ask. You know, it says in Romans chapter 8, 
verse 31, and I love this passage. Oh my days, I love this passage. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the elect? Who shall bring any charge against any of us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? I'm going to read that again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, who are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! (laughs) In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, come on, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Come on. Do we remember his faithfulness? Are we motivated by his glory? And do we know that God is fighting for us? You know, Psalms chapter 23, there's this debate as to when it was written. But what is not in dispute is that that would have been one of the most testing and troubling times in David's life. If it was at the time when he was running from Saul, he would have been in a cave. And we're going to read this passage Bear that in mind because he is in the most dire situation that he could be facing. And yet he reads, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Will we remember God's faithfulness? Are we motivated by his glory? And do we know that God is fighting for us? Because if we remember, if our joy is for his glory, and if we know that God commands the armies of heaven, then I promise you, church, I promise you, we will move from a life of stress to a life of freedom in Christ Jesus. Amen.